You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Liberty Family Church. For more information about our church, head to the website, libertyfamilychurch.net.au. Well, we've been on quite a journey this year, haven't we? Quite a, quite a journey. We've been working our way through God's story, starting in Genesis, and we've been working our way all the way through the Old Testament. And guess what? Guess what? In just a few weeks' time, we're going to be moving from the Old and into the New Testament. And, you know, sometimes for us, as we've, we've looked at, we can kind of see the Old Testament as, well, that's the Old, and so we'll just move on to the New, because that's the important part of Scripture. But we've been taking the time we have been in the Old Testament because it's so key to understanding all of God's story because it's an important part of God's story too. Because if we only sit with maybe the New Testament and maybe the Psalms and some of the books that we naturally like or maybe easy to understand, then we're actually missing out on the entirety of God's story. And we'll read things in the New Testament and we'll struggle to make sense of them because it's actually quoting things from the Old Testament and that sort of thing, yeah? So that's part of the reason why we've been doing this, this journey as a church this year. It's kind of like, has anyone ever turned up really late to a movie at Hoyts or something? Does anyone still go to the movies or is that a pre-COVID thing that no one does anymore? Yep, Laura and I turned up late to Hoyt's the other week, we went on a date and we went and saw the new Thor movie, which was so romantic. But it was funny because we're, we're like, oh, we've got to get this and then we're going to get some food and sneak it into the cinema to eat and all that. I don't think you even have to sneak it anymore, do you? You can just, yeah, all right, well, we snuck it. Anyway, and we were, we're like, we're, we're going to be late. We're going to miss the start. We thought we'd miss the opening credits, but we missed a bit of the movie as well. And it kind of reminded me, as we were trying to make sense of the plot, and who can make sense of the plot anyway? Like, doesn't Marvel Universe, right? Anyway, we're trying to make sense of it, and it kind of dawned on me. It's like, this would be what it's like if we try and just read the New Testament without having a solid understanding of the entirety of Scripture. It's like we come into it and we see these plots, plot lines and these themes, and then we're like, well, hang on a minute, how does... What, what's that talk? What? I'm lost. That's why it's so important, isn't it? Because from the very first pages of Genesis all the way through to Revelation, we're seeing these patterns. We're seeing these key themes repeated over and over and over again. And we've kind of been sitting with the ones we have, and I think it's pretty fair to say we've been sitting in the uncomfortable tension, haven't we, of the... <laughs> of many of these, these patterns and themes that, that are not easy to sit with. They're not easy to sit with, but they're important to sit with if we're actually going to understand God's story and, in turn, the wonder of the gospel. Yeah? Um, and the other thing is, all these themes and patterns that we've been looking at thus far are not unique to the people back then. But if we do a bit of heart reflection ourselves, it doesn't take too long to realise 
they're not unique to those guys. They're actually true for me even now as a New Testament believer as well. Okay, so since coming back from leave a little while ago, we've had a couple of different services doing different things. So I thought it would be good just to do a very quick recap of our journey in God's story so far. So here we go. Do you want to stopwatch or something and see? No. So we saw in Genesis how God created everything that we see and marvel at in the world. He created everything and he saw that it was good. Creation. Then God created mankind, the pinnacle of his creation, created in his own very image. And mankind, Adam and Eve, were able to enjoy intimate relationship in God's very presence in the Garden of Eden. And it was very good, just as God intended. Until it was Genesis 3, mankind choose to rebel against God. That's a very simple way. If, you, if someone says, well, what is sin? You can say rebellion. Sin is rebellion, going against God. Adam and Eve chose to sin by doing what God told them not to and eating of the tree and the garden. And what happened was sickness came into the world. That's what the Jesus Storybook Bible talks about. Sickness came into the world and made hearts, human hearts, hard towards God. And the issue was that as soon as they, they sinned, man and God can no longer enjoy that perfect, close, intimate relationship. Separation, a, a holy and perfect and just God cannot coexist with unholy, unjust, imperfect people. It's just, they're like, they're like um, ends of the magnets. They naturally repel from one another. Distance came between God and his precious people. And from this point on, all the way back then in Genesis, we see this consistent pattern over and over again. And it's a central theme throughout the entirety of Scripture. Mankind's ongoing battle with obedience and sin and God's resolute faithfulness to his people despite their ongoing battle with obedience and sin. Over and over again in Scripture, we see God is the one who goes to great lengths to re-establish relationship with people. Yeah? We've seen that over and over again. God's continually reaching out to mankind in love and provides way after way after way, opportunity after opportunity after opportunity for them to draw near to him and be holy as he is holy, pure as he is pure. Over and over again, we see in Scripture, God's people say, that's great, we're in, we'll do it. Whatever you say, God, we're there. Before, again, falling into this pattern of compromise, of forgetting and continuing to sin, choosing to rebel against God and his ways. And this, this vicious, downward, destructive spiral into sin um, we see in Scripture, results in God's people being not only separated from him, but then divided from each other. Israel go into two kingdoms, northern and southern, and eventually their sin leads to judgment. God judges them for their sin and allows them to be taken into exile. God allows both kingdoms to be completely humbled, 
removed from their homes and taken out of their land. And while the northern kingdom of Israel were taken into captivity by the Assyrians and sadly never heard of again, the southern kingdom of Israel, as we looked at the other week in Daniel, were taken as exiles and they lived in a place called Babylon. And that is a very, very quick summary of where we've been so far. How was that? That was quick. (laughs) Sorry? (laughs) Thank you. That's pretty good. I was hoping for two, but that's pretty good for me. (laughs) So um, today what we're going to do is we're actually going to focus on two key books that are are chronologically at the end of the Old Testament, and they're the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And we're going to reflect on the period when God actually led his people, not not allowed his people to go into exile, but actually led his people back out of exile, back to Jerusalem to experience that relational and societal and spiritual restoration. So how about we just pray and um, invite God to really speak to our hearts today through his word. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that, that your word is alive and active. Your word is alive and active. And we thank you that your, your words that you've led me to reflect on and you know that I'm even going to be speaking here right now, Lord, are uh, actually you speaking through me. I'm, I'm nothing special. My thoughts are nothing special. But your word that I'm sharing is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And we pray, God, that today that your word would go forth. Even things that I don't say would be heard so that you would get all the glory and all the honour and praise. So that our hearts would come alive to the wonder of God's story, the, the sheer beauty of the gospel, and that we would leave this place encouraged, Lord, encouraged to press on in this life to, to continue to seek you and continue to serve you each and every day in whatever ways you call us to. So God, speak through this word today, we pray. And may you get the glory as the God who restores. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you open up your physical Bible, if I didn't, I didn't bring mine today, but if you... There you go, Tim's got it. If you open up your physical Bible, what you will notice if you go to the index is that there's two books called Ezra and Nehemiah. What you might be aware of is traditionally they're not two books. They're actually viewed as part A and part B of one. In the Jewish tradition, it's actually just the book of Ezra. So it's important that, and now you might be wondering, why on earth has he grouped two books together? Like, this is going to go till 2.30 this afternoon. Like, no, it's actually one book, uh, and it's, it's important to view it that way. And if we actually look at the narrative of each, it's clear to see how they're linked. Kathleen Nielsen from the Gospel Coalition explains this well. She says, these two books cover three different waves of returning exiles, from 538 to 433 BC, they tell one story, the restoration of God's covenant people according to his word, which they are now called afresh to obey. That's the consistent story that these two lengthy books, which we're not going to look at in detail, but I encourage you to 
Well, they're not too lengthy by Old Testament standards, but they're, they're long enough. <laughs> so you can check them out. Um, you can check them out in your own time this week. But here's a little, little insight into it. So after 70 years in exile, God does what he promised to do. Who remembered what God said about the, uh, the exile? How long would they need to be in exile? 70 years. You can see Jeremiah chapter 25 if you want to read about that, being prophesied. And he sovereignly, and also Daniel, I guess, and he sovereignly guides a foreign king to allow some of his people to, to leave Babylon to rebuild his temple. And it's pretty remarkable if you actually stop and think about this. Here's how Ezra records these events in Ezra 1, 1 to 4. He writes, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of the God that is in Jerusalem. Just think about that. That's pretty incredible, isn't it? A foreign king giving his complete blessing to some of his people that are no doubt helping him out politically, economically, living in his land, working the land, all that sort of thing. And he's saying, hey, you can go and do what your God, you can go and worship your God. That's okay with me. Pretty amazing. What's even more amazing about this is that 150 years prior, these very events were prophesied that from the prophet Isaiah that not only would there be a king of Persia who would allow the people to go, but there would be a king of Persia by the name of Cyrus who would allow his people to go. Isaiah 45, 1-4. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed, I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. Isn't that incredible? Like, really, 150 years prior to foretell, foresee what is going to take place, not only that some random Persian king, but a Persian king by the name of King Cyrus, who was not born at that stage. Like, that's remarkable, isn't it? That shows that's just one of many fulfilled prophecies right there from Scripture that highlight how... Not only is God a mighty, powerful king, 
but he's also a sovereign ruler who makes promises and then makes a way for his promises to be realized. Yeah? And it gets, it gets better, believe it or not. It gets better. Not only does God lead King Cyrus to release these people, he also guides King Cyrus to provide substantially for everything that's needed to rebuild the temple and to reinstitute temple worship in Jerusalem. You can read the, the length, the, the list, sorry, the lengthy list in Ezra 1, 7 to 11. But what, what's often missed when you read this list is actually the dollar value of what Cyrus has, has freely let go here. Like, you are not talking about just a couple of hundred bucks of stuff. These things are priceless. They're, they're, you know, someone's estimated they're like millions of dollars of value right here as a gift. Mark Deva, a pastor from the US, says, Cyrus's gift was no small thing. It probably included the golden altar, golden table, golden lampstands, golden basins, who knows gold's kind of valuable, and massive bronze pillars, stands and basins so large that they could not be weighed, as described in 1 Kings 7. This was enormous wealth. They were irreplaceable, and God had miraculously restored them to the people so they could reinstitute proper temple worship. Isn't that amazing? Like, God divinely leads this this pagan king, someone who doesn't follow him, to not only release his people, but to give away incredible things of great wealth that he could just have and stare at all day in in his, you know, storehouse of gold. But no, he says... Take these things. If they're, if they're going to help you in worshipping this king, take them. They're all yours. And all of that, as Mark Deva said, it was so that all the temple worship, which we read about in the earlier chapters in the Old Testament, would be able to actually be done properly in accordance with the law. So, you know, we could go on and on all day with these kind of things. I'm not going to do that today, but... God is a good God who provides for his people. Why I'm sharing this with you today is to remind you of, I think, probably one of the most important things from Scripture, from God's story. Right from the very start of Ezra, we see that it's God who's the hero. God's the one who's the hero. God's the one who wants to see Israel freed. God's the one who wants to see Israel flourishing. God's the one who is mighty. God's the one who actually cares about his people. God's the one who is faithful in fulfilling his promises. God's the one who restores and makes a way. And God continues to make a way for his people, even through the people that he selects to send back to Jerusalem. In um, Ezra chapter 2, when you read it this week, you'll, you'll discover a man by the name of Zerubbabel, which I'm surprised is not on the, the boys' names for 2022 list. Um, would be a good one. So if, if anyone's got a baby on the way, Zerubbabel. Zerub for short. Um, but God, God chooses this man as the guy to be tasked with heading back to Jerusalem, leading his people and starting to rebuild the temple. And you might be thinking, well, why does God choose Zerubbabel? Well, remember 
many years ago, God actually promised that a king from the line of David would one day reign over and shepherd the nation of Israel. Do you remember that? One of the promises made. And remember how when the nation of Israel were taken into exile, the king was taken off too, wasn't he? So there was no king. And it was kind of like, well, okay, there goes that promise. Not at all. Zerubbabel is actually from the royal line of David. So if you look in the genealogy of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 13, we'll pop it up on the screen, you can see him listed right there in that genealogy. So in choosing Zerubbabel and appointing him as the one to lead people back from exile to Jerusalem, this is yet again God's way of reminding his people that he's faithful to his promises, that he's good, that he's patient, that he's kind, that he will, no matter what, no matter the hardships, no matter what might come their way in life and all the swings and roundabouts that we all experience in this crazy thing called life, he will bring about his promises. He's a God who keeps his covenant promises. And he is committed to redemption, his plan of redemption, no matter what, despite their best efforts and our best efforts at times to derail his plans. So thinking back to Old Testament times with the law, who else is required in temple worship to properly worship and interact with God? A priest, someone to represent the people, someone to make atoning sacrifices on their behalf, someone to lead them in the worship and praise of Yahweh. So who does God lead out of exile? He led Joshua, some translations you'll read it as Joshua, who was a Levite, and he returned to serve as a priest to oversee the building of the temple as well, but also then to serve as a priest in that temple. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Not only does God seek to reestablish this line of kings to to rule over and faithfully shepherd and lead his people, but he also reestablishes the line of priests so that his people can be restored to right relationship with him. That's what all of the bells and smells and things in Leviticus are all about. It's about restoring people to a state of purity where they can be in a holy and pure God's presence. Yeah? What an incredible God. What an incredible God. You know, I kind of see that God is declaring through all of these divine appointments and directives, he's saying, hey guys, I actually care for you. I care about you. I long to restore you. I will make a way. I am faithful to anything that I have promised to do. That's kind of what I see him saying through all this. And, you know, we're not, we're not going to look at it in detail today. You can read chapters 3 to 6 of Ezra. But they look at the construction of the temple. And Zerubbabel and the returning exiles, they face plenty of challenges from some unfriendly neighbours, from a, from a stop work notice as well, from King uh, Artaxerxes. Um, but eventually, 20 years, 
took 20 years. 20 years after returning from exile, and with the help of another king of Persia, Darius, the temple is finally finished. And this is a beautiful moment in Israel's history because what do they do? How do they respond to this temple? Well, some of them, when they saw the foundations being laid, they started crying because they compared it to Solomon's temple and were like, well, this is nothing compared to Solomon's temple, which is true. It's, it wasn't, wasn't as majestic and marvellous. But at this point in time, God's people choose together, united, to come together and dedicate the temple and celebrate with joy. In Ezra chapter 6, 16 to 18, says, And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the returned exiles, celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered at the dedication of this house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem, as is is written in the book of Moses. And after this, in another beautiful collective act of worship, Israel celebrated something that they hadn't been able to celebrate together for quite a while, Passover. Ezra um, 6.19 says, On the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together, all of them were clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returning exiles, for their fellow priests and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. What a, what a beautiful picture oh, that is, isn't it? After so many, so many low points in the story thus far, isn't it great to see all of Israel expressing worship and gratitude to God? And not only is it, you know, like, let's remember, this, this means that relationship with God is restored once again. They can, they can be close to God. They can enjoy through the, the temple sacrifices and all of that sort of thing. Intimacy, closeness with God can be enjoyed again. And I think at this point, all is looking up for Israel. Things are looking pretty good. And from Ezra chapter 7 all the way through to the end of Nehemiah, so you can read that this week, you'll see that God uses both Ezra and Nehemiah to guide people in faithfully following and worshipping Yahweh once again. And both of them play really key roles in, in restoring the law of Moses, seeing that people follow the commands once again and leading them in a process of repentance and committing together to renew their covenant with God. You can see all of that. Things on the whole go quite well. God's plan of restoration it would seem, will soon be complete. And the problem was, restoration wasn't nearly complete. In fact, it was far from being complete. And this realisation, as the people came to terms with this, as they, as they looked at what they had, as they 
as they you know, even saw this great temple and then compare it to other times where the cloud of God's presence was residing over it and things like this, they were like, man, this isn't what we were hoping for. It's not quite what we expected. As a writer for Our Daily Bread explains, it says, Ezra and Nehemiah picture God's people regathered but struggling. They are poor subjects of a foreign king. Their city is devastated. Enemies oppress from without and sin threatens from within. And chapter 13 of Nehemiah, the last chapter, it, it pretty well just ends on a, on a really, on a downer, you know? It's not the kind of thing if, you, if you're depressed or something. Nehemiah 13 is not where you'd turn. Okay, it's, a, it's really just a sad list of how Israel, in so many different ways, continues to be unfaithful, continues to compromise, turning away from God and going their own way. That kind of crazy cycle, if you like, of sin, sorrow, repentance, deliverance, worship that we've seen all the way through God's story to this point hasn't ended. It doesn't end despite the best efforts of, of two pretty, pretty zealous and eager kind of guys in different ways, in Ezra and Nehemiah, in leading the people. You know, Nehemiah essentially closes at the end of the book with these words, paraphrased, like, well, I tried my best, God. Don't hold it against me. Like, that's pretty much what he says at the end there. Despite God's miraculous intervention and grace over and over again, that full restoration that Israel were holding out for, that God had promised to the nation of Israel, wasn't going to be realised just yet. Can we have the um, welcome team come and hand out the communion, please? As I um, said a bit earlier, you know, Ezra and Nehemiah, along with Malachi and, and Esther, they're, they're the books that chronologically wrap up the Old Testament. And in many ways, they, they serve as, as a, bit of a, a bit of a bookend, a signpost, if you like, pointing to the reality, as, as all of Scripture thus far, from Genesis 3 on, has been pointing to the reality that whilst God's redemption plan bringing people back to him, redeeming people, making people right with him. All underway, it's, it ain't finished yet. It's not finished yet. The promised one, the eternal king, and the great high priest, the greatest high priest that the writer of Hebrews talks about, the Messiah, will soon come to redeem his people. And you know, if we're, if we're listening today as believers, we, we know in part, don't we? We know in part just how wonderful God's plan of redemption is, don't we? We've tasted it in part. We know the, the sweetness, I guess, and, and the joy that comes from finding forgiveness in Jesus Christ, from enjoying relationship and intimacy with God through his son. But I think, and 
I'm sure this is true for all of us. Like the Israelites back at this this point in history, pre-Christ, even right now, there's some parallels. We now, we exist in a place of tension too, don't we? We experience the promises. We experience the redemption and restoration of God in part. And like the Israelites found back then, waiting for the fulfillment, for the the fullness of the redemption to be realized, can be a really tough gig. It can be really hard. As we exist in a broken world that's far from perfect, as we we long for, for permanent, intimate, close relationship with God, and yet our experience of day to day life would say otherwise from time to time. Hello. We may have experienced the the wonder of salvation in Jesus, but we continue to really struggle with what feel like overwhelming challenges in this broken world. We may have and enjoy the benefits of, of intimate relationship with Jesus through the indwelling of Holy Spirit, and yet we may still... All of us do from time to time, from season to season. We may really struggle with the significant burden of our own indwelling sin. We too, albeit differently to the Israelites back in this day, we struggle as we live in the tension of the now and the not yet. And yet, and I really want to encourage us today and hear God's encouragement to you today, his great plan of redemption. God's great plan of redemption to see you fully restored and fully alive and free and completely conformed into the image of his son ain't finished yet. He's he's just not done with you yet. No matter what, no matter what, as you continue to trust in his son, God will continue his process of restoration, his process of redemption in your life, restoring, refining, renewing you in this life. He will continue to be faithful in shaping you to be more and more like Jesus, the image of his son. And here's the beautiful thing. This is the not yet, but It's a sure not yet. Just like God shows that his promises made long ago uh, will come about and he makes a way for that to happen. Jesus has already made the way for this to happen for the not yet that when our time waiting in this place of tension is up, when our time waiting in this place of tension in the now and not yet on earth, when our days here are done, we will, not because of what we've done, not because of how we've chosen to live our lives, how many dollars we've given away, how many meals we've paid for, how many, um, you know, anything that we could possibly do in our own energy with the own resources, even given by God resources, not because of any of those things, but simply through faith alone and by grace alone. You'll actually be invited into God's own presence you'll be invited to enjoy him and to worship him 
forevermore, freely, to reign with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth, to enjoy eternal life in all its fullness, to take hold of and see realised all of his promises in full. And friends, that's the end point of the promise for anyone who places their faith in Jesus Christ. As Paul writes in Ephesians 3.6 from New Living Translation, he writes, And this is God's plan. Both Gentiles and Jews who believe the good news share equally in the riches inherited by God's children. Both are part of the same body and both enjoy the promise of blessings. Why? Because they belong to Christ Jesus. This, friends, should give us hope and should give us encouragement to press on with joy as we live in the now and not yet. This knowledge made alive in our hearts by Holy Spirit will lead us to live grateful lives for all that we've already received and all that we already enjoy in part through Jesus while we also eagerly anticipate and wait patiently. For some of us, hopefully, got a, quite a few more years ahead of me to wait patiently for that. But no matter what stage of life we're at, as we wait patiently for God to bring about all his blessings and promises in his time. Let's just um, take a moment as we've got our elements in our hands to just, just reflect on the simple thought that, that God will bring about his promises. For some of us, maybe we're sitting here today and you know, we're, we're just weighed down with the weight of living in this world which is beautiful in so many ways, but it's also difficult in so many ways. Just take encouragement that through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, your sins, if you've placed your faith in him, have been forgiven. And he has made you, as we just read before, he has caused you to be, um, to be able to enjoy the promises that he has made now in this life, but also to inherit the ones to come when he makes all things new. So let's just take a moment to pause and reflect on that.